Well, as Stephen said, my name is Matt. Um, we're going to be continuing in Acts today, so if you want to flip or find a Bible or turn it on or whatever it is you do, uh, to Acts 18. And while I do that, we will do our little introductory bits of saying, uh, Happy Father's Day to those of us that are fathers. Hope you have called your father. If not, you still have a few hours left uh, before you call your dad to do that, unless he's way far ahead in time zones, then, then you're out of luck. Um, and then congrats to any grads that are here. I don't know if anybody graduated yesterday, but if you did, congratulations and um, happy trails to whatever it is is coming to the future. Uh, that's an exciting time in your life. But as uh, Stephen said, my name is Matt. Uh, I am the director of Northwest Collegiate Ministries, which is a mouthful, so we shorten it by saying NCM uh, here at OSU. And I work with college students, and it's fun times. But um, today I hope that you have brought your seatbelts and strapped them to your chair because we are going to be covering a lot of material, and there's a lot going on. Um, we are going to be finishing Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Stephen started it way back in chapter 15, um, where Paul takes off with Silas. Uh, he said, uh, let's go and strengthen all of these churches that we had gone and started on our first journey. And so they left to go do that very thing. And so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, we've got nine main characters. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Claudius, Gallio, and your totally next first child's name, Sosthenes. Interspersed with these nine characters are six different cities and locations. There's a lot happening here. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it down into two main sections. Uh, the first one is just the physical, actual travels of Paul and his traveling buddies uh, and who they met along the way and, and what they did. And then the second, we're going to kind of look back and see what actually happened to Paul while he was here and what was happening, just for aids of... Um, understanding. So if you have found Acts 18, we're going to start in verse 1. So it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent, tent, tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Now when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's uh, Greece, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the poor guy, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. 
So after this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancrae, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Then he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer, a uh, little longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people happening here. Um, so if you want to go to that first slide, I know hopefully you out in the back brought your binoculars because it is smaller than I thought it was going to be. But um, we have the first part of Paul's journey. And so there on the left side, we see Paul was in Athens last week where Davy was preaching about um, the, the unknown God. And so Paul leaves Athens by himself and goes to Corinth. Silas and Timothy will eventually meet him there. They were way up north still. Uh, Paul had fled in the middle of the night, and so they're going to catch up. Uh, and he ultimately uh, stays in Corinth after meeting Priscilla and Aquila for 18 months, a year and a half, which considering the amount of traveling Paul has done, for him to, to stay someplace 18 months, a year and a half, is really a long time. Uh, he really planted roots. Okay, next slide. So then Paul, after leaving Corinth, takes Priscilla and Aquila with him to Ephesus and leaves Simon and Timothy, or Silas and Timothy, behind in Corinth. We have no idea why he left them there, but they stayed there in Corinth um, and took Priscilla and Aquila with him. Okay, next slide. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then he himself kind of travels down to Caesarea uh, and then visits the church in Antioch, or in Jerusalem, and then travels home all the way to Antioch. And when it says there in verse 22, uh, when he went up and greeted the church, that's the, the term for him going to Jerusalem. And then the last slide uh, is just the, the final journey. All in all, Paul departed Antioch, where he started there on the right side, uh, the spring of AD 49, and returned the fall of AD 52, a journey of about 40 months, three and a half years. It took Paul to make this loop. Granted, he had a long stay in Corinth, but that's a long time. This is a long journey, uh, and realize, you know, to go from chapter 15 to the end of chapter 18, that's three and a half years of time in three chapters, so a lot happens um, in these chapters here. But then if we go on, verse 24, just to catch the last little bit here, uh, so now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing them the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This man Apollos meets them, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, ends up going back to Corinth and becomes this huge pillar there for the church there in Corinth, which is pretty awesome. Um, just as an aside, it's very possible that this man Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, we don't know for sure, we don't know who wrote it, but he is one of the potentials to have written and after meeting Priscilla and Aquila, so that's pretty cool. Um, what happened to Simon, or Silas, I don't know, I keep calling him Simon, Silas and Timothy, what happened to them? Well, that's a good question. Silas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. Paul leaves him in Corinth, and he just disappears from the scene. In First and Second Thessalonians, which Paul wrote during the 18 months in Corinth, he's mentioned in both of those in the introduction. 
and he's possibly mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, though there's some debate on whether or not it's the same guy. He just outright vanishes. You know, we can read from some outside sources maybe what happened to him, and he certainly became uh, a strong member of the church in Corinth, um, but he just disappears. Timothy vanishes for about five years from this point until he pops up in chapter 19, uh, at the end, where they're in Ephesus, and Paul's about to embark on another journey, and Timothy is sent ahead of Paul to kind of pave the way and prepare the way for Paul. And then after that, he becomes a traveling companion for Paul, and, and he's around quite a bit. But he disappears from the scene for about five years. All in all, this can arguably be said, this is one of the most successful missionary journeys of all time. Churches were planted throughout Asia and Macedonia and Achaia, which is modern-day Greece. Powerful disciples were either converted or taught the truth more accurately, only to become huge pillars of faith. Bonds of friendship were forged with Priscilla and Aquila, and I'm sure plenty of others, that helped shape the spread of Christianity for the rest of its history, if we're honest. And as Stephen said a couple weeks ago, you and I are likely here because of this journey, the gospel spreading kind of north into Europe, and then just the story goes from there. It's an amazing, amazing journey. But for the rest of our time, I want us to look at Paul, and more, more specifically, what happened during those 18 months while he was in Corinth, because a lot happened to Paul. He had a lot of life changes. He had a lot of ministry changes in his life, different phases, and I think it's important that we recognize them. So verse 1 says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And has a gospel ministry ever gone as you expected it would? Has it been as easy as you thought? Has it gone as you thought it would go? Has it been as easy to, to speak the gospel to your friends, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to your neighbors, or whoever? And I know some of us are like, well, it never was easy, but um, hopefully not too hard. Do we even do gospel ministry? I'm sure Paul would have something to say to us if we didn't. I loved hearing Brent and saying, you know, I, I have these plans. This is what I want to do to continue preaching the gospel to my coworkers. Are we thinking about gospel ministry as we go? But I doubt Paul taking those first few steps as he leaves Antioch with Silas was thinking, I'm going to be alone when I get to Corinth. That's my plan. I just don't think that that was part of his plan. But I think Paul was more than just alone when he got to Corinth. We have a man who didn't, and he, he certainly wasn't going to neglect gospel ministry, but he wasn't going full out either. Now, we will get an unprecedented glimpse into his mind and what he's thinking here in just a minute. Um, but I think to understand where he's at, we have to set the stage. Now, what are the events that led Paul to be alone at this moment? So these are the things that, that Stephen talked about. I just want to just hit them really fast. So if you go to the next slide, um, as we said, Paul started way over in Antioch, his home, uh, talking to, to Barnabas, his first companion on the first journey saying, hey, let's go back and, you know, let's go back along our same journey and retrace our route. And Barnum said, yes, great. Let's take my cousin, John Mark. And Paul's like, no. And Barnum says, yes. And he says, no. And they just don't get along and they separate. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, heads west across the water, hits the islands. Paul takes Silas and goes north, as we saw on the route. What a crazy, auspicious start to a journey. As Stephen said, wrapped in conflict the whole way. All right, next slide. He joins Timothy in Lystra. They made it a little ways, so now their duo becomes a trio. 
which is pretty awesome for them. Um, the next slide. Then they get to Philippi, way up in the north, and there they meet a demon-possessed girl, and they cast the demon out of this girl. Unfortunately for her, uh, she was demon-possessed, but she was kind of like a, a fortune teller, and she was making a whole lot of money for the slave owners that owned her, and they are not happy that their golden goose is no longer producing. So as a result, they take Paul and Silas, and they bring them for the magistrate, and they arrest them. They strip them, they beat them, they possibly flog them, toss them into prison, shackle them. After a, an earthquake and, you know, kind of a long story, they're let out the next day and asked to leave town. All right, next slide. They go to Thessalonica. There, they preach the gospel, but in the end, a jealous crowd of Jews incites a mob, and they seek out Paul and Silas at the house they're staying. A family named, you know, that just is the family of Jason. Unable to find Paul and Silas there at the house, they arrest Jason and some of his family members for harboring these guys that were literally, it says, turning their city upside down. Jason and his family were later released, more than likely well after Paul and Silas were gone because they had escaped in the night. And then the next slide, they get to Berea. And there, they're treated better but the mob from Thessalonica, which isn't all that far away, finds out they're in Berea. Let's go chase them out of that town. And Paul barely escapes in the middle of the night by boat, by himself, to Athens. And then the last slide, where we saw last week, he's preaching in Athens by himself, has limited results there, and then goes to Corinth. So Paul's alone. But I think it's easy for us, if we didn't know all that, to view Paul I just think we, as Christianity, we have this, this thinking of Paul. He's just this stout pillar, and he's, nothing phases him, and he's just amazing, and he's awesome, and he is that. He wrote most of our New Testament, but he's human, just like us. He's got the same limitations and struggles. He comes to Corinth. He knows no one. He's been beaten. He's been chased from town to town. He barely escapes from his life, or with his life in Berea. He's had limited success where he goes. And I think if it were me, I'd be limping along, my head down, frustrated, sad, doubtful, confused. God, should I go? Should I stay here? Should I just go home? Am I even supposed to be doing this? This is not gone like I thought. And now I'm alone. And we know that you know, the word was when Paul left Berea that the guys were trying to come to him as soon as possible, but he doesn't know where they are, what's happening to him. And then he gets to Corinth. Corinth was the capital of Achaia, which is, you know, like I said, is largely modern-day Greece. It was a major town, and in almost every way the exact opposite of Athens. Athens was this, this home of intellectual thought and debate and reasoning and just smart people. Corinth, not so much. It was on a major trade route, and as you can see, it's kind of on that little peninsula bit right in between the chunks of land. So it had two ports, huge trade city. They estimated it had a population of about 200,000 people. It's a big city. And as a result of the constant flow of people, Corinth was this melting pot of cultures, of religions, and resources. It held this reputation throughout Rome as a city of wickedness, a city of money. Lots of money, strange philosophies, strange religions, and a just a huge sexual freedom. The temple of Aphrodite, the, goddess, the erotic goddess of love, 
They had 1,000, 1,000 temple prostitutes, highly esteemed by the public. Each night they would descend into the open arms of the city. 1,000 temple prostitutes. That's just the city of what it was. In fact, the name Corinth became synonymous with the phrase to practice prostitution. This is what people thought of when they thought of the word Corinth. Basically think of an ancient version of Las Vegas. How does one man make a dent here? What can Paul do? He's alone. How does Paul at this point, fighting these emotions of doubt and fear and everything he's facing, how does he even begin to make a change in this city? 200,000 people. What well, all started with the divine hand of God moving people. And in this case, Aquila and Priscilla, later known throughout the chapter in their opposite of Priscilla and Aquila. In verse 2 it says, And he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So we know the story. Roman history is pretty easy to find and read. And so in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius issued an order that forced all of the Jews out of Rome. See, when the Romans took over an area, when they took over a people, they realized that the best way to keep this just recently conquered people under subjugation was to let them keep as many of their laws and practices as possible, which makes sense. You take over them, you keep them happy by letting them do basically everything they wanted to, you, they just give you their money from taxes, everybody's happy, everybody wins. And so the Jewish laws and practices were ones that were allowed. However, in Rome, Claudius grew increasingly frustrated that the Jews were constantly persecuting their Christian neighbors, causing this, what he said was a terrible disturbance in his city caring little for who the guilty parties may or may not have been, and misunderstanding, this is important, misunderstanding that the Christians were not a subset of Judaism. He didn't understand that. He kicked them all out. He's like, you guys are causing troubles. You're persecuting one. I don't care. You're all Jews. Get out. He didn't realize that Christians were different. So he kicked them all out. Most scholars are in agreement that Paul arrived in Corinth around the end of the summer of AD 50. So Claudius kicks everybody out of Rome in AD 49, and Paul arrives sometime in the summer of AD 50. We don't know much about Priscilla and Aquila prior to our encounter with them in Acts 18. As amazing of a couple as they are, they're kind of mysterious is their background. Uh, Aquila, as it said, was a Jew from the province of Pontus along the Black Sea. We honestly don't know much about his wife Priscilla, whether she was Jewish or Roman, or frankly, whether the couple was even Christian prior to their arrival in Corinth and meeting Paul. Uh, some people say that uh, she was from an extremely wealthy family, uh, which is highly possible just based on her name. Um, but we do know that they were together, and they are always together, and their bond is extremely strong. They are never listed in Scripture apart. That is a guarantee. They are always listed together. They are an amazing, amazing married couple. So sometime between Claudius's edict of eviction in AD 49 to Paul's arrival in the summer of AD 50, they had set up a tent-making shop in the marketplace. They were tent makers by trade, so they had gone back to what they knew in order to maintain a living in a new city. And as was typical for Paul, go to the marketplace. Where are people? Where can I find ministry? 
Uh, Paul would go to the marketplace and look for God's direction. Oh, here's some people I can meet. Here's some people I can work with. Here's some people I could do ministry with. That was just part of his plan. And of course, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Of course he does. This divinely orchestrated meeting between the three of them, it changed the course and propulsion of the gospel forever. It really did. Um, it's just fascinating to look at meeting someone for the first time. Because I guarantee you that when they first met, they never would have thought, oh, we are going to form this amazing bond of fellowship and friendship. Those of you that are married, did you know the very first moment you met your spouse, oh, the one I'm going to marry? Of course. But that first meeting changed your life forever. Some of you are like, yeah, I knew. Of course I knew. Um, imagine, what if like Sonny had never met Cher? Siegfried had never met Roy. Chocolate chip cookies had never met milk. Han Solo had never met Chewbacca. Like all these things, like what would have happened if they had never met? And yet here we are, you know, literally changing the course and propulsion of the gospel forever. But also that, not only did it provide that, it gave Paul a place to call home during this time in Corinth. They were a consistent friendship, a consistent relationship during his time where he was having a hard time. And for the next 18 months, they got to sit under one of the greatest teachers of the early church. Imagine the stuff they learned. Imagine how much they grew just in their knowledge of God and Jesus. And in fact, you know, we see them later on instructing Apollos because they, they knew so much. I can just see the three of them sitting up late into the night just talking about whatever it is that happened during the day, the debates and the discussions and uh, the arguments and whatever else, and just talking about that late into the night. Time doesn't permit us to delve fully into these two. I wish it did. Um, something for you to do on your own, but how they fostered house churches wherever they went. Their travels from Corinth to Ephesus all the way back to Rome and then likely fleeing the crazy man of Nero, their travels back to Ephesus, planting churches everywhere. But at the end of Paul's life, locked in a prison cell in Rome, awaiting his death at the hands of that same man, Nero, Paul wrote his last letter, 2 Timothy. It had, at that point, it had been 16 years since this first meeting with them, and they were on his mind. 2 Timothy 4 says, Greet, he calls her Prisca at this point, but greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus, or however you say that name. He's thinking of them at the end of his life. This was a bond of fellowship that had an amazing impact on Paul. And while certainly he had begun forming these bonds upon his arrival, he was still really restrained in his ministry. His gospel influence was extremely muted. muted. Verse 4 states that each Sabbath, Paul was found reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks, but that's about the extent of his ministry. He makes tents during the week, full-time, and then on the Sabbath, he goes and preaches the gospel. He's human. Of course, he's feeling exhausted and emotionally burdened. And he's alone, and he's likely still healing from being beaten up. But how do we know all this? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, we get this unprecedented view into his mindset. So on the screen, we have 1 Corinthians sh chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. And he says this, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, talking about I came to you in Corinth, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, and with great fear, 
and trembling. Paul is scared when he gets to Corinth. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. So we sent Timothy, who was our brother and our co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in, in vain. Paul is scared. He's timid when it comes to sharing the gospel. He's agonizing over the fate of these people that he left behind in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. People were arrested after that. What happened to these people, these churches? I am afraid, as he says here, that the tempter came in and basically just wiped you guys out and that the churches we started are no more. And if we piece these puzzle pieces together, which is fun to do, uh, we realize that while Paul was in Athens, Timothy and Silas caught up with him briefly because in Thessalonians, he says we sent them back out. They arrive and Paul says, go back and find out what has happened to Thessalonica. Find out what's happened in Philippi. Uh, Timothy goes to Thessalonica, Silas goes to Philippi, and eventually they will catch back up with him in Corinth. Um, but when he gets to Corinth, they had yet to return. He's alone. However, an amazing thing happens in verse 5. So it says in Acts 18, verse 5, and after Silas and Timothy came back, they came down from Macedonia, Paul spent his full time preaching and testifying to the Jews, telling them, the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. Finally, these guys come back. Silas and Timothy have returned. But what do they return with? Well, Philippians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tell us that they brought financial resources from these churches, from these believers, which is great. Paul needs that. It enabled him uh, to no longer have to work and make tents. He had money. He had resources. I can start proclaiming the gospel full time. They also brought themselves, obviously, but their team is back together. Now They're now a trio again, and now there's actually five of them with Priscilla and Aquila. But more importantly, they brought news, and it was good news. If we continue the first Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul is a new man. For now we really live. Like, I am finally able to do, I am so excited about hearing the things that we did. I am so excited about just hearing all of the ministry and knowing that what we did was not a waste of our time. That it rejuvenated Paul. It refreshed him. Yeah, he's got resources to no longer have to be making tents during the week. But he's like, this is what's brought me to be preaching full time. Paul's devoted to this. He's like, your excitement, your, your speech, and your freedom. He says in 1 Thessalonians, you know, your uh, your reputation is now known throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia. Like that is what is sustaining him. His reaction to hearing the good news is to preach the gospel full time. 
What an amazing turn of events. Paul goes from kind of downtrodden and despairing and alone to these guys coming back, and all of a sudden he's like, I'm going to get in it. We're going to preach the gospel full time. We're going to tell them all that Jesus is the Messiah. He has every reason to be encouraged. His friends are back. He's got resources. Priscilla and Aquila are there. He's got financial help and wonderful news. Despite all that, he was yet again facing persecution. The Jews once again begin to oppose him and insult him. So God closes the door to the Jews. But he opens up a door to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord for that, because, you know, unless you're Jewish, I don't know if you are, but you're a Gentile, us. The door has been opened to us. Boldly walking through that door to the Gentiles, Paul proclaimed, God, or not God, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own heads. God is redirecting, redirecting, there's no extra R in there, redirecting his ministry to the Gentiles. It's like, I was supposed to preach to the Jews, and God's like, no, bam, that door is gone. Preach to the Gentiles. And he does. It's exactly what he does. Paul's ministry to preach and teach to about the Jesus being the Messiah is his only goal. And he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Realize what he's saying here. Rejecting Jesus places your guilt before God on nobody but yourself. Thoughts of, I don't need a Savior. Jesus really isn't the Messiah. will put us squarely before God on the day of judgment. This was the core of Paul's ministry. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. To teach and proclaim our need for a Savior was Paul's most important thing. And hopefully it's ours. There's nothing more important than us to proclaim Jesus to everyone around us. If we are not doing that, why are we Christians? If we say, this is the most important thing that I have ever heard, it has changed my life, then we should be telling everyone else around that. If you're into sports, the Beavers won their baseball game yesterday, which is awesome. Um, but have you told anybody about that? Oh, the Beavers won yesterday. Did you hear? In the grand scheme of things, who cares about the Beavers winning a baseball game? Compared to eternal life and salvation, that's what we should be telling people. About. I love the Beavers. Don't get me wrong. Um, and baseball is great. But, you know, that's nothing compared to how important this is. And we get that sense from Paul. So now the Jews are opposing Paul, and their combined efforts to rid themselves of Paul resulted in him doing what? He moved right next door. He literally moved right next door in a rather comical way. He moved to the house that is physically sharing a wall with the synagogue. It's like, Paul, get out of here. Stop teaching. He's like, all right. Done. He moved. In 1920, John Richard Simplot, also known as J.R. Simplot, founded the J.R. Simplot Company. By World War II, it became the largest supplier of fresh potatoes in the nation. By 2005, more than half of all French fries at McDonald's are from Simplot. I guarantee you that you have eaten a Simplot potato. 99 years old when he died in 2008, he was listed as the 89th richest person in the U.S. and the oldest billionaire ever. Way to go to the little farm boy from Idaho. Just, I'm from Idaho, just in case y'all didn't know. So, yay. Um, so this is how I know this story. 
Um, in southeastern Idaho, you will find the little town of Pocatello, Idaho, home to uh, Idaho State University and the Bengals, which is where my sister went to college. This is, she told me this story. So the county there was approached by Simplot in order to build another one of his potato processing factories. It's like, I, I'm going to bring a whole host of jobs to your town, to your county. This is going to be great. And after a lot of deliberation, the county refused his offer. So as the story goes, Simplot approached the county just west, and they agreed. He said, yes, you can build the facility, but only if you build it on the eastern side of our county, as close to Pocatello as you can. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why in the world would a, a job-producing factory get rejected, and why would another county care so much about where they put it? I'm just going to guess that most of you have never been anywhere near a potato factory, because if you had, you would never forget the horrible, horrible smell that they create. It's just... They reek of sulfur and rotten potatoes. It's just horrible. Simplot's rejection by the people of Pocatello caused him to do exactly the same thing Paul has done here. Simplot went upwind of Pocatello and said, I'm going to build my factory. And the people said, okay. Every day, the people of Pocatello have to suffer through the smell of that factory because it blows right into their town. Similarly, Paul wanted to make his presence known to the Jews by moving right next door. Not only did Crispus, one of the synagogue leaders, and his family become Christians, not only did a whole bunch of more uh, Corinthians become Christians, the Jews could still hear Paul preaching every day when they walked in and out of the synagogue. And I guarantee you that hearing of the gospel was as horrible and as pungent to their ears as Simplot's factories are to your nose. They were offended by that. Paul's like, I am going to preach from the gospel, and I'm going to let you hear it. And he probably yelled at those guys as they walked into the synagogue every day. You need a Savior. In the midst of all of this, Paul still falls prey to fear. He still falls, fear, falls prey to discouragement. He's got this ministry team. He's got these resources. He's got great news from the north. A lot of things are happening. New believers, a new family of synagogue uh, leaders. But you can almost hear Paul saying to himself, how long until I'm arrested this time? How long until I'm beaten or driven out of the city or worse? When's the hammer going to fall? Maybe it's time to pack it in. Paul needs some reassurance. And enter God. Look at verse 9. One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Do not be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will harm you, because many people here in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there in Corinth for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. This is such an important time in the life of the early church that God didn't just send an angel. God didn't just send some messenger. God went himself and said, Paul, don't stop. He gave him three exhortations. Don't be afraid. Don't leave, and don't shut up. Continue preaching right next door to the synagogue. And for God to tell Paul, do not be afraid, it's obvious Paul was afraid. It's obvious Paul was like, I, I'm done. I'm going to pack it in. Because God says, no, don't do that. Stay here. Preach. Don't shut up continue. 
Nothing dampens our gospel witness like fear. Fear of what others are going to say to us. Fear of what others are going to do to us. Fear of just not even knowing what to say. Fear strikes hard. And we respond to it really well, unfortunately. We like to hide. But God tells Paul, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I've got your back. Keep doing what I've called you to do. There are so many people here in Corinth that still need to hear the gospel. Keep on. You are safe. We have a four-year-old girl named Allison, uh, and like all small kids, she has bad dreams. And, and what does she do? She comes running into our room and crashing into our bed and um, clinging on to us. But why does she do that? Because she seeks safety. She knows that in the midst of her fears, that she can run and cling to us for assurance that all is well. And eventually, you know, of course, she's sprawled out all over the place like, you know, for a four-year-old. She takes up way too much room. But she's there because she was scared and she isn't anymore. Paul does the same thing here. He leans into God and is reassured of his commission to preach the gospel. In the midst of all of his fears, in the midst of everything and his doubts and everything going on, God reassures him that all is well. And if you read Matthew 28, God gives us the same assurance. He says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. God isn't promising us safety. He's not promising us a trouble-free life. Trouble-free life? Gosh, a trouble-free life would be horrible. Um, he's not promising that. Any more than I can promise to my own kids those same things. Those that are parents, we would love to be able to tell our kids, life is going to be easy. Nothing's ever bad going to happen to you. It's always going to be amazing. You're going to win everything. You're going to be great. We just can't promise that. And God doesn't promise that to us either. And as we're going to quickly look at, trouble follows Paul again. But he does promise that he will be with us. No matter what season we're in, what state, what life, what circumstances, God's our greatest assurance. Paul stayed 18 months in Corinth only after hearing God's reassurance. I'm pretty sure that he would have left had God not, had not God intervened. And as we read here, just real quick, towards the end of his time in Corinth, the emperor Claudius had dispatched his friend Gallio uh, to Corinth. Gallio's tenure can be accurately dated to 51 to 52 AD. They were uh, in charge for just about a year. So the, the events of Acts 18 can be dated to those two years, which is extremely important and significant, significant because these are the only dates that we know for sure about Paul. So the Jews, by now being quite tired of Paul preaching right next door, seize their opportunity to finally be rid of him. Okay, here's a new guy in charge. So they grab Paul and they bring him before Gallio and this tribunal. And there was this huge raised platform. And so imagine Gallio is where I'm standing. He's raised up on this platform. And then out in the, the crowd, there's this raised circular disc or whatever. And both parties, the accusing party and the accused, would stand there. And the accusing party would say, this is what whoever so-and-so has done. And then after they said that, then the accused would get to make their defense. So that's what's happening here. Sosthenes accuses Paul of trying to get all men, not just the Jews, to worship God contrary to the law. See, the Jews, they're, they're crafty. They're trying to get Paul in trouble with the Romans. See, if we remember, Jewish law and practices were allowed by the Romans. 
So their accusation is this. Paul has formed a non-legal religion and is recruiting Jews and Romans to this non-legal religion. Arrest him. Get him out of here. If found guilty, he'd be gone. However, to their detriment, the Jews didn't understand fully how the Romans viewed Christianity at this point in history. As we mentioned previously, Claudius viewed Christianity as a subset of Judaism. He didn't understand that the Christians were trying to separate themselves because they're different. They're not the same. Gallio, being a close friend of Claudius, and being in Rome in 49 when the edict was issued, thought the same way. He's like, Christians are just a subset of Jewish life. You guys are fighting. So upon hearing this accusation, he doesn't even give Paul the moment to defend himself. Sosthenes says, hey, this is what this guy is doing. And Paul, he's about to say, well, this is what I, you know, if he's going to say whatever he's going to say, Gallio says, just get out of here. You guys are stupid. Just deal with it yourself. And they do. They beat up the dude that made the case. and like, it's your fault, Sosthenes, that Paul's getting away. Darn it. We're going to beat you up. And Gallio does nothing. But just imagine what the implications would have been had he thought differently. If Gallio would have said, Christianity, yeah, it's an illegal religion. It's now illegal to be a Christian in Rome. Christianity benefited from Rome significantly in the first few years. This would have severely hampered the gospel spreading to the world. But by now, I hope you're asking yourself, what in the world is the point of this? Yeah, it's a fun history lesson. We got all these characters and all these people and moving parts. Why? Is it just the point just to show us what happened? What's the implication in our lives? Well, first off, I think it's pretty evident that Paul, being the greatest single evangelist possibly ever, he made it plain. Dark times are coming. We're going to face trouble. Life is going to be hard sometimes. It's naive of us to think that it's going to be amazing. Nips and snails and puppy dog tails, right? Just happy and rainbows and glitter and all this fun things. Like, it's just not life. Paul says things are going to happen, good and bad. Be prepared for that. We're told so many times in Scripture that persecution and trouble are coming. Be prepared. But Paul shows us that these earthly things that we often tend to cling to, they're really worthless. Our health can fade. We can lose our job. We can lose our friends. We can be alone. We can be alone facing a wall of enemies. Only God can sustain us. It was only after God came to Paul that he stay for 18 months. Like I said, I think without that insurance, he would have been gone. Why stay? But I think as Christians, and I'm just going to paint a broad brush here, but I've been a Christian a long time, and I've met a lot of us, and I'm going to guess and say that for the most part, we view God's assurance and God talking to us as this kind of mysterious thing. How do I know what God's calling me to do? We're in a college town. How many times have I heard doing campus ministry? What should I do as a career? Uh, what's this and that? Or who am I going to marry? Later on, you know, sh- where, sh- where are we going to move? Should we have kids? How many kids are we going to have? You know, just on and all these questions. And we just seem to 
think that God is just kind of mysteriously out there, like, I don't really know what God's will is for me, and we just throw it out there. But it doesn't have to be some mysterious thing. As believers, you know, we're not left to our own devices. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ourselves as believers is the guarantee that God's assurance is there. It's through the Holy Spirit that we know the reality of God's presence in our lives. I think too often we as Christians want some sort of burning bush experience. You know, this light from above, like, la, moment, and God just plainly and obviously says to us, make a left here, marry that person, take this job. He just doesn't always do it that way. He can, certainly. For some reason, we're so prone to forget our connection to God through the Holy Spirit. It's almost like a student approaching their teacher and asking for the answer key to the test. And the teacher says, I've given you notes. I've given you lectures. I've given you the most complete study guide I possibly can. What more do you want? We've got the Holy Spirit. What more could we possibly want? God says, I will assure you. And I've given you the Holy Spirit to do that. It's up to us to listen and pursue that. Let's pray.